0: Welcome to Farmside Today, our regular podcast about what's happening in pharmaceutical science, hosted by Professor Gino Martini, Chief Scientist of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Visit www.ourpharms.com forward slash podcasts for more Farmside Today and other podcasts. You can help us support the work of pharmacists by joining. Membership is just 60p a day.
1: Uh, My name is Gino Martini, I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. I'm joined with my colleague, Sir Cahill. And I'm absolutely delighted that my good friend, Sana Pizik, who is the UCL lead of Global Citizenship Programme on Outbreaks of Infectious Diseases, is also a teaching fellow at UCL. I'll now hand over to Sarah.
0: In your opinion, what are the key lessons learned from COVID-19 and what do you think we should continue to do or what has been some of the positive, positive lessons from COVID-19?
2: of the key lessons is that an over-reliance on modelling can be dangerous, Uh, particularly if we're using flu as an example. Uh, This is one of the reasons that um, testing strategies, there were so many U-turns in the UK around this particular aspect. Some believe that uh, it would be too far widespread for testing to make any sort of useful intervention. However, um, that is true for the flu, but if we look at COVID-19, you see that the incubation period is longer. So when it comes to contact tracing, it means we we can buy more time to separate and isolate individuals. I think also what we've learned is that communication is everything. So countries that uh, were able to get public buy-in, that had regular updates with their public about what they're doing, how they're doing it, meant that there was a smoother uh, journey throughout uh, what has been an extremely difficult decision to make, particularly because actions like lockdowns have huge effects on primary care and essential health. So we do see that um, many people who needed Different types of treatments were unable to receive them during that period. And those trade-offs are incredibly difficult to make, the economic cost, the mental health aspect of it all. And exactly for that reason is why very strong communication of science versus blank statements around the science, making sure that it's transparent so that we understand what that particular evidence base is. So prior to the delay of the lockdown itself, the rationale, particularly around the behavioral aspects, so lockdown fatigue, uh, was not made publicly available for other scientists. And I think that that's something that going forward uh, should change. Also, while tech can help, you actually don't need a a fancy world-beating app to do basic contact tracing. You need a good old-fashioned public health approach with boots on the ground. So during the Ebola outbreaks, which were in war zones, if we were able to get higher levels of testing there, we really have no excuse uh, here in high income countries or or in the West. Investment in public health has to be before the crisis hits. Only eight public health labs were available due to restructuring and previous budget cuts. And again, that made things difficult. Now, even if we had, let's say, slight delay in entering a lockdown phase. There were many other things that could have been happening during that time to ensure that our healthcare workers are safe and ready and that we have the appropriate testing strategies. We heard loud and clear from Dr. Tejos to test, test, test. And I think that um, following the World Health Organization advice is something that uh, should be considered you know, in times like these. So there was, I think, a sentiment that uh, we would try things out in in a slightly different way, but the right course in any pandemic is speed, speed, and more speed. Finally, another lesson, which I think actually we can take from swine flu and what is currently unfolding now with the coronavirus is this vaccine nationalism that uh, appears to be occurring. If we go back to the swine flu in 2009, we saw that some of the world's richest countries were scrambling to get their hands on vaccines however they could, leaving out many low- and middle-income countries to the back of the queue, while high-income countries made deals to guarantee access to vaccine with pharmaceutical companies. So Australia had stopped one company from exporting doses to the U.S. uh, until they had immunized its entire population. And the U.S. government at that time, with Obama in power... Had delayed in you know, a promise to, to donate vaccines to poorer countries. So, the WHO has been really pushing for international agreements in advance. They have something called the COVAX facility. So, they've got Gavi on board and other uh, organizations to buy doses in advance up to 2 billion of whatever vaccines will become available. And hopefully, by the end of 2021, we might be there. But again, there is this element of almost a geopolitical fight over vaccines, and what we've seen from swine flu is that can be extremely problematic. So it's not just the element of you know who gets there first. We've got Sputnik V coming out of Russia, uh, the CanSino in China. And the Americans, of course, are also now announcing that they're going to zoom past phase three. It doesn't matter who gets there first. What is important is that we have a variety of different vaccines that we can use that are actually efficacious. How will we know that is once we have the evidence available and safe, of course. Gino had mentioned earlier that pre-COVID, The anti-science, anti-vax movement was already gaining strength, despite the fact that the WHO announced that polio has now been eradicated from Africa, which is a huge achievement due to vaccination campaigns. However, what we do need to be concerned about is that if we come out with a type of coronavirus vaccine that is not as efficacious as it could be or has some other concerns around it, it sets us back in trying to ensure that we have as broad as possible coverage of vaccination. It, it fuels that anti-vax movement. So we, we really can't afford to get it wrong. And also, it will be extremely difficult to revaccinate an, a, an entire population if consequently one that has been uh, rushed to completion isn't as effective as it could be. You're going to have a hard time uh, revaccinating that population, but also they might have a different response because of the prior one. So lots to be discovered, but actually we can look back at other lessons, so swine flu, et cetera, to see that historically it has been a race to be first, and in, in other outbreaks, and that what we need in advance is an international framework convened by the the WHO in which countries make multilateral commitments because this is a global issue and it requires a global solution. Uh, we are all interconnected. So. If there, if the virus continues to spread rampantly in other parts of the world and in large regions, it's only going to take longer to end the pandemic fully. So there is this aspect of self-interest versus global interest. And I think that's going to be the hardest lesson to learn.
0: We've spoken to other people on this podcast and they've identified similar positive trends that collaboration and communication is, is key, really, of coming together and working together with a shared outcome rather than trying to get there first.
2: And I, I would say that there has been unprecedented amount of collaboration, uh, open databases. So going back to January 11th, when the Chinese scientists published the genome of the coronavirus, it was only eight to ten weeks afterwards that you know the first trials began, which is, that's a world record that's never been set before. So so that is still present. Uh, yet on the other hand, there are some countries that are veering away from a global agreement on how vaccines will be allocated and that prioritization. Because, of course, due to uh, many different types of manufacturing issues, etc., we will not be able to vaccinate full populations at once. So, the priorities may be centred around elderly, those with underlying health conditions, certainly our healthcare workforce, an essential workforce. And then it could even be in regional, where the outbreak is the most out of control. All of these factors may be considered. But I do think um, more collaboration cooperation with the WHO will lead to better results.
1: Uh, I suppose the last question, Oksana, is... We're obviously approaching autumn, winter in the UK now. And what are your thoughts on the second wave? And are we better prepared for this now than we're obviously before when the pandemic hit?
2: So when we currently are using this language of waves, but if we look at it at a global perspective, if we zoom out, it is unfolding in one big wave. Cases are accelerating and we have yet to hit that global peak of cases. So the WHO has also said that there is no evidence that coronavirus follows any seasonal variations that would be more common to influenza and other coronaviruses. So we need to maybe move away from thinking about it as sort of a seasonal issue, although you are right that going into autumn, there are going to be some additional Pressures. We will have the regular flu in circulation, and currently we do not have an understanding or, or solid understanding around co-infection with coronavirus and flu at the same time. That is still being reviewed about how that uh, plays out. Equally, people are going to be spending more time indoors. We know that generally transmission is less frequent in well-ventilated outdoor spaces Uh, with good airflow. As soon as we start to pile in in the colder seasons, where it's stuffy, where there is poor air circulation, and where there are more people in smaller environments, that's going to then raise the possibility that infections will be transmitted. Typically, second wave isn't a term that we would normally use in epidemiology, as the virus hasn't uh, lulled. Uh, it hasn't gone away. It still exists in our population and it has spread to over uh, 188 countries so far. So what we are essentially seeing are localized spikes, localized return of cases and stabilization. For instance, in, in the UK now, we're behind other countries like uh, France, etc. We, we came out of lockdown later. So our numbers will we'll catch up with them soon enough, and arguably when we are in colder temperatures as well. Now, some people are looking at Australia to see you know what the the flu predictions might be there because it, uh, their flu season is just ending at the moment. W. Chill warns really you can't take that as a, as a full a reliable prediction but it may be may give us some indication about what the flu season might look like in the northern hemisphere and interestingly because we have had these hygiene measures social distancing physical distancing there have been lower rates of uh, flu transmission so it could be that the main concern around second waves has been that it may overwhelm uh, the healthcare system but it could be that if we are continuing With these practices, that flu may not be as contributing to the winter bed crisis as as it usually does. But again, we have to also factor in that fatigue can be an issue. Offices and schools are now reopening and about one billion children have been out of school during the pandemic, which has led to an educational crisis. We need to get kids back to school. In office spaces, it's probably a better idea to keep it blended so some individuals are entering on a sort of a rotational basis with some individuals working from home. So in Scotland, for instance, it's still being encouraged to work from home because if we simultaneously open everything all at once with a temperature drop, with everyone coming inside and teetering off of this sense of urgency where we may be, again, using less vigilance around certain, for instance, hand hygiene. But also, we are now introducing face masks in certain scenarios, and that definitely needs to be a nuanced approach. But all of these factors together make it difficult to predict. However, the last thing we should be doing now is be complacent.
1: Oksana, on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, I want to thank you for two things. One is being able to raise the awareness of what pharmacy does, all the work that you did in the last five, six months. And also, for taking time out and sharing your views and your expertise. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Gino. It's a pleasure to be on. And I'm a big fan of this PharmSci series, so it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us at Farmside today. We regularly add new
0: chats with interesting and important figures at www.orpharms.com forward slash podcast. So check back again soon to keep up with the latest in pharmacy and pharmaceutical science. And remember, RPS memberships cost just 60p a day. Find out more at www.orpharms.com forward slash RPS membership.